0: Up time, this is Diver 1. I am on the red. Roger, Logan's here. We are 27 minutes into our
1: dive time. But well, it seems so good here, I don't want to come but... As an island nation, we have a deep love for the seas around us. But do we think about what lies beneath these seas? There are thousands of shipwrecks lying in Irish waters, each one a unique time capsule that can reveal untold stories of past lives and open a window to extraordinary historical events. But these wrecks also carry with them treasure, sunken treasure of artefacts gold and silver. One such shipwreck is the Crescent City off the coast of Cork.
2: My name is Owen McGarry, and we're operating on my dive boat, Deco Delta. And with me is Timmy Carey and Garrod Looney from the Fermay Diving Club. And together, we're going to go out and see what lies beneath the waves over the wreck side of the Crescent City.
1: Owen McGarry is a builder by day, but his real passion is diving. And for years, he's been diving to shipwrecks looking for sunken treasure.
2: We're now just leaving the port of Union Hall, which is sometimes known as Glendore. Also Glendore is on that side, and this is Union Hall. It's kind of like a commercial fishing port. It was nice and serene and quiet up till the tragedy of the when it was put on the national map, because of that tragedy of a trawler going on the rocks out in Adam Island, which we'll be past in a few minutes. This is our closest uh, exit point, our, our port. ...that we'll go from to go to the Crescent City... ...which is about six miles from here... ...just under Galley Head on Dulic Rock. That's where we're heading to now.
1: The steamship, the SS Crescent City... ...was built in Liverpool in 1870... ...for the Liverpool and Mississippi Steamship Company. She was built to transport goods... ...from the two great ports of New Orleans and Liverpool. Crescent City set sail in 1871 from New Orleans on the return leg of our maiden voyage. On board there were 41 crew and 4 passengers. She carried with her general cargo and two tons of silver, which was made up of Mexican silver coins and 40 boxes of silver bars. Having crossed the Atlantic, a journey which took over two weeks, she encountered treacherous weather conditions and sunk off Galley Head in Cork. Over the last 142 years, some of her silver has been salvaged. But lying beneath the water of Dulik Rock still lies over 100,000 euros worth of silver coins. Owen, with his crew Timmy and Garode, are diving to the Crescent City to see if they can locate this sunken treasure.
2: I got into diving, I suppose, 24, 25 years ago. It was kind of what lured me to it. As I was always intrigued as to what was down there. what could lie beneath. It wasn't so much the marine or the fish life; it was more so wrecks, particularly the the World War One ones. There was a couple of local guys around my area that were diving, and you'd always hear the stories, Oh, there were deep sea divers and all that. And that's what kind of as a, as a kid that kind of always intrigued me. So that's that's where I stem from. Um, plus, it's it's a it's a sport hobby. Kind of whatever term you want to put on it, that you can do well into your advanced years, golden years and such.
1: There are over 17,000 shipwrecks recorded in Irish waters. This figure is revised regularly and is considered to represent only a fraction of the real number of wrecks around the coast. Carl Brady is an underwater archaeologist for the National Monument Service, which is part of the Department of Arts, Heritage and the Gaeltacht.
3: A map here showing all the rest we, we have documented so far. And you can see it covers quite a large area. You're talking about maybe 400 miles kind of west of Donegal to maybe 150 miles southwest of Kerry.
1: Carl, in collaboration with the Geological Survey of Ireland, has been working on the largest underwater archaeological study in the world. What they have uncovered is thousands of shipwrecks, each one a unique capsule of history.
3: The Heritage and Seabed, it's a hidden history, and in some ways it's a forgotten history. In, In that way, I suppose it's been neglected over the years, and I suppose as technology has improved and we've been able to access deeper water we've gradually realised the importance of the heritage on the seabed. I mean when we started we had a list of maybe a couple of hundred shipwrecks off the Irish coast and you know now we're up to nearly 17,000 after 15 years of research so and we know that there's probably many more wrecks out there and um, I suppose some of the wrecks in Irish waters could be considered to be of you know national importance but also international importance so we have an obligation to kind of as guardians of, of those shipwrecks to protect them, manage them and appreciate what's there and commemorate great losses where they happened or maybe research or investigate other wrecks where there's kind of an interesting story to be told
1: It is hard to comprehend the scale of the shipwrecks around our coast or grasp their historical significance When you look at the map that charts these wrecks what you see is Ireland surrounded by thousands and thousands of tiny dots You start to see the magnitude of it How each one of these tiny dots represents a shipwreck. Each one a story.
3: From the earliest times, people had to get here by sea and invariably some of these boats would end up wrecked on our shores or in our seas or in our lakes. And then as we move on through time, we had invaders, settlers, traders and um, these all influenced how historical, political and social events played out in Ireland over time. Sometimes these... Shipwrecks that end up on our seas would give us information that we wouldn't normally have about a political event, like the Spanish Armada wrecks off the coast of Ireland. Without them we'd have very little physical evidence for these ships ending up on our shores. You know, it's that kind of historical narrative that we can get from those wrecks and the physical evidence, the tangible evidence that we wouldn't normally have. A record-breaking
2: forty-eight tons of silver bullion has been recovered from a shipwreck off the Galway coast.
4: Odyssey Marine Exploration says it salvaged more than 1,200 bars of the precious metal from a British cargo ship which sank in 1941. The haul is estimated
2: to be worth.: Diving
1: for treasure years years and shipwrecks is now a serious enterprise, with large-scale operators such as Odyssey Marine Exploration Company salvaging millions of euros' worth of silver and gold from shipwrecks such as SS Montola and the Garsopa. These finds have generated headline news all over the world. For own the real treasure is the stories that lie with this wealth. The
2: Mantola and the Gersopa, two vessels that were carrying valuable cargo, as in silver bullion. The Gersopa, which has recently been salvaged, um, she was a casualty of the Second World War. You know, as the story goes with treasure, it was it's a lovely story. It's its a story that dreams are made of, you know, that the treasure hunters find or stash and they recover it and happy smiley faces but you can't forget the wreck itself the wreck itself also has a poignant story attached to it and how it became to end up at the bottom of the sea it was traveling in a convoy that was destined wherever its destination in england was liverpool or wherever but it was running low on coal and off the west coast of ireland it had to fall out of the convoy to go to Galway to refuel so that it could continue on its voyage but almost akin to a wounded animal, the fact that it fell away from the convoy, the escorted convoy, it kind of lost its protection and left it vulnerable to enemy action and the ship was actually spotted by a a German plane the German plane then radioed the closest, nearest submarine, the submarine then came and attacked the vessel sent a torpedo into it which actually sank the vessel. In the process of the vessel sinking, the crew took to two lifeboats. As day broke, it, it became apparent that uh, there was about 15, I think, in one lifeboat and two in another, so they decided to join, get together, take the two out of one, and they'd make a, a temporary sail in the lifeboat. And based on their last known position, they knew what direction they had to make for land. It wasn't until two weeks later when that lifeboat came ashore off Cornwall that actually, of the 17 that were on board, only one survived. The cargo was supposed to be worth millions upon millions, but was it worth, you know, that 17 or 16 crewmen's lives, when you put it in in that perspective? So, you know, that's the touching part, but yet, you know, for... For now, for the treasure hunters, it's a, it's a great story that they've recovered at and from the depth. The depth of the, where the Gersopal lies is actually about a kilometre deeper than where the Titanic is.
1: But who owns the sunken treasure? The Odyssey Marine Company dived under licence from the British government. The deal agreed was that the company would keep 80% of the haul after expenses. The remaining 20% would go to the Treasury. In Ireland, the National Monuments Act gives protection to historic wrecks in Ireland's waters.
3: All wrecks over 100 years old are automatically protected. If you want to dive one of these wrecks, you need a licence. And uh, we would issue a a large number of licences every year to divers and archaeologists who want to investigate wrecks. So if you want to do some further work on a wreck like excavate or investigate a wreck more, you would need a separate licence, and that's an excavation licence. These laws are in place to ensure that these wrecks are, are protected and maybe not subjected to unwelcome salvage or pillaging by treasure hunters and so on. So it's it's a, a system there to help protect the wrecks.
1: Finders of a wreck or any archaeological objects underwater are obliged to report such discoveries.
3: But it, I mean, if somebody's diving and they come across a wreck that they didn't know was there, and there's objects on the seabed that might be in threat of being washed away or are in danger of being destroyed you know, it's OK to lift something like that. Now, that's not to say that you can go and search a whole wreck systematically to try and re- recover artefacts for the sake of recovering them. But if you do come across a wreck or an archaeological object on seabed, you have four days to report it to ourselves, the National Museum, our, our local guard station. So we would try and work with divers and liaise with divers where if they do find something, they report it to us and then we can advise on what the appropriate course of action is.
1: What is fascinating about the shipwrecks mapped in Irish waters is much more than the allure of treasure hunting. Timmy never loses the sense of wonder.
4: It's hard to describe the feeling of actually dropping down the shot line and seeing a shipwreck you've never seen before. It's an utterly magical feeling, particularly if it's a wreck that you're the first to dive in, and you know no one else has seen it maybe since the First, Second World War, maybe much longer longer before that. And as you're deer, you're just trying to size it up, you're trying to make sense of what you're seeing. You're trying to do a mental sketch to describe it to the dive team, maybe sketch it, take photographs.
1: Each of the shipwrecks tells a tale of a fight for survival that was often lost. The wrecks are not just ships, but graves that mark lives lost at sea. For Timmy and Owen, this is something they are very mindful of.
4: Some of these wrecks that we're privileged to see, you know, every couple of months you get an email from someone from the UK, South Africa, Canada, Ireland to say that a long-lost relative of theirs perished on the ship. And could you give them some photographs? And it's it's just nice, it's it's a nice feeling to be able to, to help them out early read on the wreck for the for the person that, that suffered the loss some time in their family history.
2: You'll always stumble upon a wreck that you actually identify. I've identified numerous wrecks down through the years. But that then leaks out into now what is the world wide web. And it literally sometimes comes It comes back to your door. I've been contacted by relatives of people who were who lost on shipwrecks. You know, to actually see part of the wreck. You know, I'd record it in video and send it on to them. And it's mind-blowing for them. It's like... You know, once their loved ones are lost at sea, the wreck is their grave or their grave site, and it's by watching the video they can visit the graves of their loved ones. So, you know, there's 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 a little bit more to it. It's like the diving side of it is just that's how we get to those sites. It's just a means. It's a form of a form of travel. To me, is when you get there and you gather that information. You know. You can't describe that, you know, not many people can do it.
1: We have left Union Hall and are on our way to do our first dive to the Crescent City. There is a sense of heading into the unknown. We have no idea what we will uncover on our dive. We do know that the shipwrecks around the coast of Ireland hold not just the possibility of treasure, but they also bring us to a closer understanding of national and international historical events. As we head out to the site of the Crescent City, Owen shares with us a tragic story of a World War II shipwreck.
2: The Castle Hill was a a Belfast Collier, owned by Kellys in in Belfast. And in the Second World War, I think it was was close to the end of the war, and they were travelling from Waterford, they came out of Waterford Harbour, and a German bomber, plane actually spotted him it, f- it flew off then it came, it circled back and uh, it started to attack him there was one guy who manned a gun that was on the stern he was blown from that position into the water and rendered unconscious but as he came to he witnessed what was unfolding that his shipmates had deployed to the life raft the life boat I should say Modern boats have life rafts, the older boats just had a small a small boat that they just just literally launched. They had taken to the lifeboat while the airplane came back, dropped a bomb on the vessel, and finally sunk it. But because the aircraft pilots didn't want any, any story told, they opened fire from the planes and shot the survivors that were in the lifeboat. But they didn't they, they never saw the guy that was in the water anyway this guy lived to tell the tale much to the disgrace of the Germans of that day you know they they didn't adhere to the rules of war and then that guy who survived he was in the infirmary in Watford for a while and he had the 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 unenviable task of writing to the mothers fathers, wives, husbands of his lost crewmates. And you know, you have to be respectful of the site because lives were lost on this. And you wonder what happened to that vessel in the last moments before it sank beneath the waves. The panic, the hysteria, you know, the fear that must have went through those guys' heads. We'll never imagine that. As, well, hopefully, we'll never, we'll never go through a war like what they did or have to work their daily lives while a world war was going on around them.
1: The survey in the deeper waters around our coast has documented the hundreds of ships that were sunk due to hostile action during World War I and World War II. During the wars, these ships carried valuable cargo to service the wars. And this is what made them such important targets as the loss of the cargo would have had a serious impact on the war efforts.
3: You can see there's large concentrations of wrecks up off the Donegal coast. And off the southern coast of, of Ireland and these are I suppose are known as the killing lanes during World War I and World War II where U-boats used to sit, sit out and just wait for the Allied convoys to come in and um, the U-boats used to just attack them and pick them off and as you can see they had devastating effect with the loss of hundreds of wrecks during both wars in, in fact probably close on 2000 wrecks so it really is you know, a bad area for wrecks the map tells part of the story of these wrecks, where you can see kind of just the distribution of them and where they are.
1: In his office in the Customs House in Dublin, Carl has a fascinating library of maps and charts. Some of these maps are hundreds of years old and are still in use. These working maps were made to go on boats. What we are looking at with Carl are 19th century maps that have sailed with captains around the world, some several times. There's a real sense of continuing history as we look at the map of Galley Head that charts the location of Crescent City.
3: Um, I think that's Galley Head there, 144. Yeah, Yeah, here we have Galley Head. You can see it's an important area from early times you can see it is a castle uh site here in castle cove and it's a protected area, it's a recorded monument. And um you can see by the amount of sites in the area and, and the number of castles that strategically um, this area was important from you know from a sea point of view or a maritime point of view in that the people who built the castle here would have wanted to patrol the area and maybe the name here, Galley, comes from the type of vessel a Galley which would have been used maybe from the 13th century onwards maybe even earlier along the coast of Ireland.
1: We are approaching Dulic Rock at Galley Head, the site of Crescent City. We are not reliant on maps, but instead can locate the site of the Crescent City through modern, sophisticated navigation equipment. 20th century technology may be guiding us, but as we travel through rough waters, we are transported back to the day in February 1871, when at 3am the magnificent ship, led by Captain Williams, hit to Rock. In the dark, foggy morning, the ship flooded quickly and slid off the reef, sinking fast. Miraculously, the crew and passengers made it safely to shore, Captain Williams took with him six boxes of silver, but his ship and the rest of the treasure sank to the bottom of the Celtic Sea.
2: This is the site called Doolik Rock. As you see in the background, that's Galley Head Lighthouse. The reason why the lighthouse was built was because of the shipwreck. The Crescent City went up on this rock. What you can see here is at low tide. You can see the rock is exposed. During high tide, little or nothing of that rock is actually exposed. That's when it becomes a serious hazard. That's what was the hazard for the Crescent City. And she swung around it and she's just on the the far side, on the eastern side of it. They had nothing, that lighthouse wasn't there. So literally they would have came close to shore and because it was fog, you have to realize they're navigating with old style. They would no modern equipment like this GPS format. They had sextants navigate by the stars, the moon, sun, all that kind of stuff. If they can't see the sun, moon, stars, they can't get a bearing. Then for a while they must sail along and they're practically lost until Mother Nature gives them a navigational aid. That if they still sail or if they're caught in the wind, they can literally be blown on the rocks.
1: We are now at the location where the Crescent City sank. We know that 30 metres under these choppy waters lies the shipwreck and its sunken treasure.
2: Like, this wreck was 2,000 tonnes. It was a composite ship, you know, of half timber, half steel. But still, there must be a significant part of it there, you know? Sun is high in the sky. We should should have good visibility here. So I'm hoping that we'll find, you know, the remains of the bulkiest part of the wreck, which is the engines and the boilers. You know, she probably just had one boiler, but that's the part that we want to see. It was dived on extensively, I'd say, to recover. like They would have been diving that in the turn of the century, even back then, with primitive diving gear. This would have been considered fairly deep at the time. There was more commercial work went on. The shaft was recovered, not recovered, but moved, so that further access to that area could be got. But on moving the, the shaft, it silted up, so now the remains of the kinds are under nine, ten feet of sand.
1: Since it sank in 1871, some of the Crescent City's treasure has been recovered. Captain Cawkett, the chief surveyor of the Salvage Association of Liverpool, was sent immediately to survey the wreck. Over a period of three months in 1871, his team dived to the Crescent City, recovering only six more boxes. Two years later, another attempt yielded one more box of silver Mexican dollars and two boxes of silver bars. In the following century, many more attempts were made. But the full treasure trove has never been recovered.
2: Valencia, Cork, Miss repetition of two radio navigational warnings. Please listen. Cork, There's a slight change of plan. As you can see, the wind conditions have picked up. We're just on the turn of the tide, so I'm going to place Timmy in the water on that mark, and we're going to attach the shot to the wreck so it'll make it safe for us to return. It's a bit late now. The sea conditions are a little bit borderline for me to leave. E. You know, we're too close to rocks and the shore and all that kind of stuff. I prefer to err on the side of caution rather than to come up and anything can happen, you know. when you've, when, you've, when the seas get rough like that, if the engine cuts out and I've just, you know, because I put out a different anchor and it still didn't hold... We don't want the same thing to happen to us as what happened to the Crescent City where their anchor failed and all that kind of stuff. So it's just in the interest of safety, at this moment of time, we'll secure the shot and we'll return. The wreck isn't going anywhere.
1: As the sea conditions worsen, Timmy enters the water. OK, Timmy.
2: You had to straight
0: behind you, Timmy, just there, look.
1: The water around us is dark and choppy. We are in the Deco Delta, a rigid inflatable boat designed to maintain buoyancy, even when large quantities of water are washed aboard. Despite this, we feel vulnerable out at sea in a small boat with the waves crashing around us. Timmy is no longer visible to us and we can only trust that he is safe underwater.
2: Um, Timmy's a highly experienced, very qualified diver knows exactly what he's doing I've every faith in him um, that's not to say he's invincible something can happen to the best of him there's books I have at home on famous, famous divers that wrote books on cave diving and all that And you see new editions brought out with, in memory of the author
4: Diver one is on the surface
2: Diver one as well. Timmy has surfaced now, we're just going to go and pick him
1: up. He's secured the anchor shot to the Crescent City, which will give us a clear mark of where the shipwreck is located on our return dive.
2: You're tied into the wreck, yeah? Yeah, it's not what it could be.
1: The weather conditions have got worse. The day is grey and wet, and the waves are coming fast and strong. We return to Union Hall. For Carl, the sunken history that lies on our seabed can tell us so much more about our nation's history.
3: A lot of people, when they look at the sea, they just see water and that's it, nothing else. But once you look beneath the waves, you soon realise that actually the sea is is full of heritage, whether it's natural heritage or built heritage like a shipwreck. You know, it often surprises me that a lot of, let's say, Dublin people haven't heard of a wreck like the Ormus Leinster. And, you know... We would consider one of Ireland's most important shipwrecks something equivalent to the Titanic or the, the Lusitania. And that's a vessel that was torpedoed towards the end of World War I with the tragic loss of just over 500 lives. And many of these people were, were from Dublin. And I suppose just to realise that a wreck like that has an impact on people on land. It's not just something that's out in, in the sea and irrelevant or distant. It actually is connected to the Irish people. It's part of our history and it would have an impact, whether it's economic, social. I and mean, when you add up all the people that were lost, maybe trade the wars in Irish waters or our further field, this really did have a, a long-lasting impact on Ireland and its history and, I suppose, our psyche as well.
1: The next day we set out early, anxious to see if the weather will allow us to try again to dive to the Crescent City. It is early morning as we leave Union Hall. The conditions are calm but the harbour is covered in fog and mist, adding to the feeling of mystery and adventure. The weather conditions are very similar to those Crescent City faced, and it gives you a sense of what they might have experienced. But they also had to deal with the added challenge of the darkness of the night.
2: We've just arrived here over the wreck site. Um, the Dulic Rock, a lot less of it is exposed as it was, as it was yesterday. At low tide, we're now at high tide and if you could imagine on a, on a spring tide that rock would be practically completely submerged especially in the hours of darkness the conditions are a forced tree westerly, as what they gave the advantage that we have is that we're actually tied into the wreck so we don't have to worry about the boat drifting around especially when galley head is so close to us and that's the direction that we'd actually drift if something did go wrong So. We're just going to quickly get kitted up and get in the water so that we can actually get things on the way and get moving. In the event, Gero, that shot breaks, our conditions worsen. Yep. Start the engine.
4: Start the engine, I'll let you know below.
2: And let give me three large ribs. Yeah, I'll get you on comms. Rev the engine, or on comms, but just in case... If not, walking, not walking, three large ribs. ribs.
1: As the crew are getting they're kitted, kitted up, You can feel the excitement build as we anticipate what might be discovered on the Crescent City.
2: It's it's kind of like, you know, when it's your first time down on a wreck, you have to kind of get your bearings first, evaluate what's... uh, get a picture of the whole wreck in your head. And then, based on the information that I've got from the other divers, I'll try and proceed to the area where they once recovered silver coins. I'll have a look in that same area, and who knows, or hopefully something might be... Uh, exposed, you know, from the winter storms or something like that, and we'd never know what we might find. There's always, you know, this is what you know divers' dreams are made of when it's when you're talking about treasure and what lies beneath and stuff like that. So, you know, if we are successful and see or recover a bit of treasure, all the better.
1: The crew are preparing to dive up to 30 metres into deep waters. This takes precision and careful planning of equipment. The most fundamental of all of their equipment is the breathing apparatus. And Timmy explains how this works.
4: What it does, it gives us a perfect mixture of air and oxygen. Oxygen beyond the depth of six meters is toxic and air beyond roughly 30 meters is actually a bit narcotic. So it has a bit of a narcotic effect on the brain. And um, it's a similar effect to being a little bit inebriated. It doesn't help you at depth beyond roughly 40 to 50 metres in. Sometimes we dive helium inside in the mixture because it's such a light molecule. Um, it gives you a much, much clearer head.
1: The divers have a communication system which will let them talk directly to us as they dive around the Crescent City.
4: One will have comms on his unit. He'll be diving the nagie unit where he can press the button and talk to the surface. I won't be able to do that, but we're diving together anyway. And we have a surface station which contact with the road. So at the moment they just have to do pre-dive checks and that. We have to make sure that it's sealed right, that there's no water getting into it. We'd
2: fit it behind. You wouldn't see as much gear up in the Christmas tree.
1: Timmy have begun their descent. As we drift in the Deco Delta, we can only imagine what they are going to see. Like magic, we hear Owen's voice, 29 metres underwater.
0: Top side, top side. this is diver one. I am on the rest. Roger, loud and clear.
1: As we wait for more reports from Owen from the depths of the sea, Garoud, who is manning the boat and is also an experienced diver, tells us about his own favourite shipwrecks.
4: My favourite shipwreck is the Meganet, which isn't too far from here. The bow of the ship is in, I think it's about 48 metres, and, and the stern den is in to be 34 metres. I like it because anytime time I dive it, I always see something on it. The last time I was on it, I saw some uniforms a small bit of pottery, there was still a few shells on it, a few more personal items that you'd always find on it. There was definitely, I've seen a pair of boots there as well. You'll always see boots on shipwrecks, Because any time I see boots I just assume fish don't eat boots, they ate whatever was, what was in the boots, so it be eerie that way alright. just give another check and see how they're going. Topside to Diver 1, what part of the rick are you at and what depth are you at?
0: Sometimes, sometimes, I'm a one 29 by four feet. I'm in around the engine, and it's like we're in an aquarium. The amount of fish I hear is just incredible. You actually you're in a different country. We are 27 minutes into our dive time. It seems so good here, I don't want to come back.
4: Top side to diver one. What part of the wreck are
0: you at now and what can you see? Top side is to diver one. I'm just moving around the boiler. Which is right behind the engine on the by a shawl of small fish. It's like it's in my feet a around the wreck. The color is the kind of, you know, a lot of stuff is green here. There's a lot of growth. But when you introduce some artificial lighting, the whole place lights up with its true color, and it's absolutely beautiful. Purple, green. Blue, red, yellow, which is primarily the sea light. The wreck itself is just concrete and steel, but what remains of it? Roger Deston. Captain, we are returning to the surface. Roger, is everything alright? Everything is perfect.
2: Put on the kettle. That's some hardship, huh? huh? People wonder why I love diving. There's Timmy there. We're right in the middle of the wreck. We're right beside the block. I saw
4: about six sets of lifeboat davits, four or five sets of boring bits, I saw the boiler. I saw lots of things. I spent the whole wreck so I stayed a lot longer.
2: Mm. Yeah, lovely dive. Sadly, no treasure. Uh,
4: Small souvenir. Piece of the coal out of the boiler.
2: It's technically not part of the wreck. We looked around precariously, you know, in the the spots that I was told, which was off to one side of the wreck. But years of winter storms, the landing of sediment on top of what, are the position of where, the remaining silver lies. It's just too, too deep. Plus, we've no way of knowing where it is without the use of detection equipment and stuff like that so, you know, which is a separate license is required to use such detection equipment and even that, there's no guarantee that you'd find it because you're looking you're looking around the wreck that's well dispersed and scattered I couldn't help the feeling of when you turn around and the amount of fish, the amount of sea life that was there was just incredible it's like a little ecosystem down there Which kind of, not the booby prize, but it was a nice consolation to not finding any treasure.
1: One of the passengers on board the Crescent City, Mr Lee, took an action against the owners for the loss of his 95 gold sovereigns that sank along with the two tonnes of silver. His case was dismissed as he never checked in his valuables to the ship's purse and obtained a receipt. He could not prove his gold existed. 143 years later, we have dived to the Crescent City. We too found no evidence of treasure. We have no tangible proof of its existence.
2: It's not about treasure. It's about, you know, keeping the stories of these shipwrecks alive and the people who were lost on it. The stories need to be told. They need to be shared with the young kids of the country and not be forgotten and left beneath the waves just to rot for all eternity. Nice dive, very nice
1: dive. Leaving Galley Head Lighthouse behind us, we return to Union Hall. There is no sense of loss for this sunken treasure. Instead, we leave with a deep curiosity for the underwater world full of stories. We leave with the knowledge that the thousands of shipwrecks that lie in Irish waters are not a dead history, but a precious and vivid insight into our past.